Let's pray. Heavenly Father, let the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Please give us ears to hear and hearts to follow you faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our scripture today is 1 Kings 13, the whole chapter. Before I read it, let me give just a brief, a brief background for this passage. It's a little bit after the death of King Solomon. The United Kingdom of Israel now has split into two, into a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. A civil war between the two has been narrowly averted. The northern king, Jeroboam, doesn't want his citizens to go south to worship at Jerusalem because that's the capital of Judah, the rival kingdom. So he set up altars and golden calves in two of his own cities, the city of Bethel and the city of Dan, as an alternative. He's encouraging his people to worship there. Obviously, a seriously sinful decision. It's at the altar in Bethel that the story begins. This is 1 Kings 13, verse 1. And behold, a man of God came from Judah by the word of Yahweh to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of Yahweh and said, Altar, altar, thus says Yahweh, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that Yahweh has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of Yahweh. And the king said to the man of God, Please entreat the favor of Yahweh your God for me, and pray that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated Yahweh, and the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go with you, and I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of Yahweh, saying, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told to their father the words he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, Which way did he go? And his sons showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he mounted it. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, 
Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with you or go with you, neither may I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of Yahweh, You shall not eat bread and you shall not drink water there. You shall not return by the way that you came. And he said to him, I also am a prophet like you. And an angel spoke to me by the word of Yahweh, saying, Bring him back with you to your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. And as they sat at the table, the word of Yahweh came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah, Thus says Yahweh, because you have disobeyed the word of Yahweh and have not kept the command that Yahweh your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which it was said to you, do not eat bread and do not drink water, your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. And after he had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled a donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road, and the donkey stood beside it. The lion stood beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road, and the lion standing by the body. And they came, and they told it in the city where the old prophet lived. And when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard of it, he said, It is the man of God who disobeyed the word of Yahweh. Therefore, Yahweh has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word that Yahweh spoke to him. And he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And he went and found his body thrown in the road, and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body or torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. And after he had buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying that he called out by the word of Yahweh against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. In this church, we preach expositionally. We preach through a book in the Bible covering all the text in it. Yet occasionally, we need to do a one-off sermon, and when that happens, the person giving the message has to select a passage. This is one of those sermons. So why did I select this passage? I'll tell you. It's because I didn't understand it. Yet I could always sense that it contained a number of different warnings. If someone gives you a warning and you don't understand it, that could be dangerous. So having done some work on it, that's what we're going to try to do today. We're going to try to focus and understand three warnings in this passage. Let's start with the warning 
that's the most obvious, the first of the three, and work from there to the most difficult. The plainest and most obvious warning in this story is the one given to King Jeroboam. Unfortunately, he's not going to respond in repentance to the prophetic warning. You see, Jeroboam has a political problem. It may seem to us like political problems only started in the last 20 years or so, but no, they've been around forever. This was 3,000 years ago. We're just a short while after the death of Solomon. When Solomon died, his son, King Rehoboam, acted in an incredibly foolish manner and antagonized the northern tribes of Israel so badly that they seceded. Ten tribes out of twelve seceded. Unlike in the United States, where the south once seceded from the north, in ancient Israel, it was the north that seceded from the south. Only the tribes of Judah and Benjamin in the south remained loyal to Rehoboam. I know Jeroboam and Rehoboam sound like they're brothers or something, but they're actually not related. That story about Rehoboam's brash foolishness is a fascinating and instructive story by itself, but for today, let's just skip to the current setting where there's a brand new northern kingdom, Israel, and a southern kingdom, Judah. Jeroboam's problem is that God has commanded the people to travel to the place he has chosen three times a year. It's in Deuteronomy 16.16. It says, Three times a year, all your males shall appear before Yahweh your God at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. Unfortunately for Jeroboam, the place that God has chosen is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah, not Jeroboam's kingdom, but his rival's kingdom. When the people go to Jerusalem, they will worship at Solomon's magnificent temple, where the priests, the descendants of Aaron and the Levites serve, where the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is, where Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, of the house of David, reigns three times a year. Jeroboam is afraid that if his people do that, their loyalty may drift away from him and go to his southern rival instead. It's a valid concern, and in fact, some of this does happen. In the kingdom period, there is a bit of immigration from north to south. So to deal with this, he creates an alternative. The previous chapter says this. This is in 1 Kings 12, beginning in verse 26. It says, And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the people will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of Yahweh at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they'll kill me in return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. This thing became a sin. He built his own altar alongside golden calves. What an awful way for Jeroboam to try to solve his problem. He set up these altars inside his own northern kingdom, and unfortunately, once this was done, no king from the northern kingdom was ever able to muster the courage to undo it. 
there will be 19 kings that followed in the northern kingdom of Israel. And according to the books of first and second kings, all 19 were bad. 19 out of 19. The central reason all those kings were bad was because they, according to the scriptures, walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin. It's a phrase repeated numerous times to describe the later kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. So it's with Jeroboam at one of these sinful altars that our story begins today. In verse 1 it says, Behold, a man of God came from Judah by the word of Yahweh to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. Now, there's two things wrong with Jeroboam already. The first is the false altar that he set up. The second is that a Levitical priest should be involved in the sacrifice, but those were in Jerusalem and not present here. Later in the chapter, it says that Jeroboam made priests out of just anybody and not just the Levites. To continue in verse 2. The man cried against the altar by the word of Yahweh and said, Altar, altar, thus says Yahweh, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that Yahweh has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. Now, the Lord is correcting Jeroboam here, but it's very indirect. The oracle of the man of God is against the altar, or more precisely, it's against both altars. He says altar twice, maybe because there's another one in the city of Dan. So if the king is naturally too proud and doesn't want to be publicly humiliated, he has an out. The Lord isn't rebuking him, just the altar. Jeroboam doesn't take the out. Earlier, when the prophet Nathan had come to King David after his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, and the prophet pointed to him and said, you are the man, David at least had the integrity to own up to it. David responded by saying, I have sinned against the Lord. Jeroboam doesn't do that. He responds in a way more predictable for a powerful man. He says, arrest that man. But if Jeroboam was a powerful man, God immediately shows who has the real power. As Jeroboam stretches out his hand to point, the Lord struck his hand and it withered. Also, the altar is miraculously torn down and its ashes spill out. Now, these Israelite altars would be rather large. This would be, there would be square, about 10 yards on each side and about 15 feet up. You'd need stairs to go up it. So the destruction of the altar would be alarming. And Jeroboam, shocked and stunned and pained, quickly asks for help. And the Lord instantly heals his hand. God is being gracious and merciful to him. He had every chance. He just didn't take it. When Jeroboam asked for help, he wasn't really repenting. He just wanted his hand fixed. It's telling that he says for the man of God to appeal to Yahweh, your God, not my God or our God. And after his healing, he offers to reward the man of God, essentially to pay him. But that's not what God wanted. God wanted him to repent, and he doesn't do it. At the end of the chapter, the scripture says, after this thing, Jeroboam did not turn away from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again from among all the people. And any who would, 
he ordained to be priests of the high places. So what was Jeroboam's problem? Why could he not repent? Let there be no mistake. Jeroboam's concern was about politics. It absolutely was about politics. He was the political ruler and he wanted to preserve his power. But he thinks that if he does the right thing by letting his people go south to Jerusalem according to God's commandment, that it's gonna hurt him politically. Politics was more important to him than obeying God's commands. The sad thing is that he was actually still operating under the Deuteronomic Covenant, which Morgan read about a little bit earlier on, in which if he had obeyed God, God would have blessed his kingdom. The prophet Ahijah had told him that earlier when he was first made king. We are not operating under that covenant today, and God doesn't promise us worldly success for spiritual obedience. But that was a promise to Jeroboam. He just couldn't do it. Furthermore, what Jeroboam did was actually worse than just letting politics take priority over his religion. He didn't just decide to set aside the law for pilgrimage to Jerusalem. He actually twisted God's ordained religious practice in such a way to support his own power. He set up his own competing religious practice to support his own purposes. So the first warning in this story as it applies to us is a warning about politics. In our country, partisan politics has a way of becoming all-consuming. We can't let that happen to us. The kingdom of God has to come first. All the kingdoms of men are temporary and passing away. It's wrong to let an earthly consideration prevent us from obeying God as the highest priority. If we ever let our political interests get in the way of God's commands, then we're headed in the direction of Jeroboam who caused Israel to sin. And of course, the warning is not just about politics. Anything that comes before God is an idol, just like those altars in Bethel or Dan. It could be a cause or a job or a hobby or a habit. We can't let anything else come first. We need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's first. And that's the first warning that we take from this story. Now, if that's the first warning, it at least has the advantage of being pretty obvious. We already know what Jeroboam was doing was wrong. We already know that we shouldn't establish any kind of false worship. Most of us will already know that the kingdom of God comes first. It may be challenging to implement that in our lives, but at least we know it. The next warning, the second warning, may be more difficult. The second warning comes from what happens to the man of God from Judah. He was the one that God chose to bring the message to Jeroboam, but God also gave him a specific command. God said, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. Why did God tell him to do that? The scripture doesn't say why. We can make an educated guess, you know, something like eating with them would be an endorsement of the evil practice that they've started, sharing fellowship with evildoers or something like that, maybe. But someone might offer up a counterexample of Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. And anyway, about this command, it's a bit harder to guess why God told him not to return the same way he came. But we're just speculating. We don't really know, and this is a key point, the man of God may not have known why either. God often gives us a command without explaining why. 
When we're talking to our children, we don't always explain to them why we tell them to do or not do something, we, but we still expect them to obey. God can do the same thing. He may not tell us why. When Jeroboam invites the young man to come eat with him and get a reward, the man of God declines the invitation, citing this warning he'd received from God. But then the old prophet, who heard all about the excitement at the altar, decides to trick the man of God into eating with him. We'll talk about that old prophet in a minute. For now, we're talking about the younger one, the man of God from Judah. Unfortunately, he does get tricked into eating and drinking there in disobedience to what God had commanded. There are several reasons that he may have been tricked. First, he may have identified with the prophet. The old prophet said, I also am a prophet like you are. He might have looked up to him because he was older. Respecting an elder is a good thing to do. Uh, Leviticus 19.32 says, You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. A third reason is he might have been impressed by the old prophet's account of an amazing supernatural experience. He said he had seen an angel, and the angel spoke to him. That's pretty exciting. It might have been any of those things, or a combination of the three. Unfortunately, it was all a lie. The younger prophet was deceived, and it cost him his life. Now, if you were comparing the three main actors in this story, the man of God from Judah seems like the best of the bunch. Jeroboam is an evil king who started a false religion, is leading the entire nation astray. The old prophet is such a duplicitous individual that we're revolted by his behavior. But this young man, he started in obedience. His intentions are good. He just got tricked. Yet he's the first of the three main actors to receive the judgment of God. So here's the second warning. It's not okay for a believer to be tricked about obeying God. We don't get any points for good intentions if we are deceived. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul writes to a church where the believers have been tricked. And unlike all his other letters, he doesn't start the book with anything good to say about them. Instead, he says in Galatians 1.6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul doesn't sugarcoat his warning by saying, it's okay, I know you meant well, or anything like that. He calls them foolish Galatians. He makes it as clear as possible that we must not, for any reason, turn from the word of God we've received. So what do we do if someone comes to us with a message we haven't heard before, a new message which may or may not be a teaching from the Lord? In Acts 17, it says this about the people in Berea. Paul and uh, Silas and Luke had gone to Berea, and it says about them, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. 
They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. These Jews were eager to hear the message, but they didn't just hear and accept everything. It says they were examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Paul and Silas and Luke didn't get their feelings hurt that the Bereans didn't just believe everything they said. Instead, they credited them with being noble because they checked their message against the scripture. We actually want you to do that too. We want you to compare our message to the clear teaching of the scriptures. I am sure that our elders and anyone who speaks from this pulpit want you to do that. If what we say doesn't align with a teaching from God's word, then we're the ones who are wrong. Furthermore, you should take it further than that. You actually know us, some of us who preach here. Some of you, some of you know us quite well, and so you have reason to trust us because you know us, but we still want you to verify what we say against the scripture. So how much more do we want you to check the message of all those leaders that you don't know at all? Don't get me wrong, if you read books by Christian authors or go to hear them speak or listen to their sermons on television or on the internet or podcast or whatever, that's great. You have an opportunity to learn and grow so much more. And I think most of those folks will be servants of God. But you have to check what they say against God's word. Some of them may be scoundrels. The Bible says they're going to be wolves. So don't let yourself be deceived. In Genesis 3, the serpent deceived Eve, and we know where that led. In Acts 20, Paul warns the Ephesian elders that fierce wolves will come into the church, not sparing the flock, saying twisted things to draw away the disciples. The warning for Christians is that it is not okay to be tricked about the things of God. We get no credit for feeling like we have good intentions if we're being deceived. In cases like this, the judgment of God can be very direct. In this story, even though the man of God may be the best of the three, or at least the least bad of the three, he's the first one to fall under judgment. The lion gets him. The scripture says in 1 Peter 4:17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? When judgment comes, it may come first on God's own people. It may begin with us. So we can't allow ourselves to be deceived. The judgment that fell on this man was obviously very directly from God. It's not as if a bad thing just chanced to happen to him. He was killed by a lion. But in non-lion-like behavior, the lion doesn't destroy his body. The lion didn't even frighten the donkey. The donkey didn't run away. Unlike the human actors in this story, the animals obeyed God completely. They stood there side by side until the man's body was taken away. So the second warning this story has for us is, don't be deceived. And this brings us to the third warning. And for us, this may be the most alarming warning of all. The scripture rebukes Jeroboam indirectly, and it rebukes the young man of God directly, but it never even bothers to rebuke the old prophet. It isn't necessary. 
His behavior is so disgusting that it's hard to even fathom how he could do such a thing. Using his authority as a prophet, he lies to the young man and gets him killed. And then he acts all religious about it. It's so disturbing that we probably need to get a few points straight about who he was. First of all, this old prophet was a prophet of the Lord. I read one commentary that speculated that maybe he was actually a prophet of Baal, but there's no hint of that, quite the opposite. And if he was a prophet of Baal, the scripture would have told us. He was a prophet of the Lord. The second thing is that we have some good clues that he was not doing his job. He was plenty bossy. He spends most of this chapter ordering people to do things. But what really needed to be done had been left undone. There in his own city, the altars and the golden calves had been set up, and they were a terrible sin. It didn't take a special revelation of God to know that. It was a clear violation of the second commandment, you shall make no graven image. And if he'd remembered the story in Exodus about the golden calf, that would only reinforce how serious this sin was. Yet we have no indication that the old prophet ever rebuked the king or the people for this sin. That was the job of a prophet. It's the job he hadn't done. He knew it was wrong. He even says so later, but he hadn't done anything about it. Instead, the Lord had to send someone all the way from Judah to give the message. The old prophet could revel in the fact that he was a prophet, but he didn't do what a prophet was supposed to do. We also know that he was old. This is just physically old, older in years than the younger man from Judah. We know that he obviously didn't have the best interest of the younger man at heart. And finally, despite not caring for the life of the younger man, the old prophet still very much wants to identify with the younger man and his message. The old prophet wanted to meet him. He lets the young man ride his own donkey. The old prophet chose to reinforce the younger man's message. And in the end, the old prophet even wanted to be buried with him. It sounds like jealousy. As older Christians, it's possible to develop sinful jealousy over younger believers in our presence. They may have more interesting lives than us now. They may be more popular. And yes, they may even be used by God more than we are. King Saul of Israel was consumed by a poisonous jealousy over the success of a much younger David. It may bother you about this passage. It bothers me that the old prophet can do something so evil and still in the same chapter speak for God. So we should say something about that. Prior to the coming of Christ and the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the work of the Holy Spirit was different in one way from the way it is today. Today, the Holy Spirit comes into the life of a believer at salvation and never leaves. The Holy Spirit is the seal and surety of our salvation. And that's how we're used to thinking of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Covenant, it was different. The Holy Spirit would come upon someone for some period of time, maybe short, maybe long, and then depart. Sometimes when the Holy Spirit came upon someone, that individual would prophesy. And it didn't mean that individual was a godly man. The Holy Spirit came on Saul, Israel's first king, before he was king, and he prophesied, even though he turns out to be a moral failure as a king. 
the power of the Holy Spirit was on Samson for most of his life, even as he slips further and further into a sinful lifestyle. The Holy Spirit came on Balaam, the son of Beor, and he prophesied true things concerning Israel, even though Balaam was a figure who's condemned in both the Old and New Testaments. So also in this chapter, the Holy Spirit speaks through the mouth of the old prophet, speaking true words from God. But this is not the sign of a redeemed life. Remember that Jesus said, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Some would say to him, and Jesus will respond, I never knew you. And so from this text, we get a warning to not be like the old prophet. And this to me is the most ominous warning of all, because the church is full of potential old prophets. Yes, many of us are old prophets. There could be one on every row. We know God's word. God has used us in the past. We have a pretty clear understanding of right and wrong, and we're still going to have that understanding going forward. Like this old prophet, even if we commit some terrible sin this afternoon, tomorrow we will still be able to accurately quote scripture, the true and living word of God. Likely, we will still want to identify with the church, with God, and the people of God. Most Christian leaders who fall have been like that. They still want to be church leaders even after they've done something grievous. And like this old prophet, they and we are the ones who can ruin the life of younger believers if we mislead them. We are the ones who can tear apart a church if we act in a sinful or divisive manner. It's not the world that can do that. A sincere younger believer is unlikely to be led astray by worldly news media or a secular teacher or persecution from a hostile government or anything like that. They're just not very likely to be deceived by such an obvious enemy, but they could be led astray by an old prophet. How can we damage a young believer? How can we harm the church body? You know, there are so many ways. How many churches have lost members not over an important doctrinal issue, but over a matter of sin? How many young believers have left the faith because a more mature believer has acted in a manner that's not Christ-like? Can you think of some stories? I won't stand up here and give examples because all of us who are older can think of quite a few. It's a point of grief. Now, of course, those who leave the faith bear their own responsibility. They don't really have a valid excuse, even like the young man in our story today didn't have a valid excuse for his disobedience. But it still wouldn't have happened were it not for the sin of the old prophet. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. When Jesus says that, he's not talking to the world so much as he is to us, the potential old prophets. So let's not be the ones who cause others to sin. God forbid that we should be the ones to harm his church. Finally, despite the grave warnings, there is a redemptive element in this story. Back at the beginning, the word of prophecy given by the man of God in verse 2 says, 
And the man cried against the altar by the word of Yahweh and said, Altar, altar, thus says Yahweh. Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. Now, ultimately, Jesus Christ is going to be a son born to the house of David. He's the one who's going to bring ultimate redemption and set all things to right. He's even going to heal a man with a withered hand, like Jeroboam was healed in this story. And Jesus is the one who will bring in the final judgment on false religion. In this story, though, Christ himself doesn't appear, but Josiah, the son to be born in the future of the house of David, does, and he'll be a type or foreshadowing of Christ. Now, from Jeroboam to Josiah, in the way we think of time, this is going to be pretty far into the future. It should be a caution to us that the judgment of God doesn't always come on the timeline that we expect. I know that we're justly concerned about things happening in our own country, in our world, about where we are spiritually, and sometimes we feel like the judgment of God could fall hard at any time, or perhaps it's all already on us, and maybe it will, but we don't know God's timing. This story about Jeroboam takes place about 930 BC. Josiah is going to come along around 620 BC. In other words, it's going to be more than 300 years in the future. A lot is going to happen during that time. The family line of Jeroboam doesn't survive past his son, who's overthrown in a conspiracy. The northern kingdom of Israel, though, will last for 210 more years, and it'll have plenty of ups along with downs. The false altars still live on even after that, but 100 more years after the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel, or more than 300 years after our story, the house of David in the southern kingdom of Judah is still around. Josiah, the one who is promised, is now the king of Judah, and he embarks on some far-reaching reforms. In the middle of the account of these reforms, we have these words. Let's read what happens. This is in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 15, talking about Josiah. Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount. And he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it, according to the word of Yahweh that the man of God proclaimed, who had predicted these things. Then he said, What is that monument I see? And the men of the city told him, It is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar at Bethel. And he said, let him be, let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. Josiah, the king of Judah from the house of David, is restoring true worship in all the land of Israel. He destroys the false altar along with the Asherah pole that someone has set up beside it, Asherah being a false fertility goddess. When we read a story in the Old Testament, 
We often wonder at some of the characters. We wonder if they were saved or not, if they're counted among the redeemed. We usually are not told. In this story, Josiah takes bones out of the nearby tombs and burns them where the altar was, thus defiling the altar and rendering it unfit for future use. And perhaps this points to the eternity facing those who worshiped falsely there. As to the bones of the man of God from Judah and the old prophet, Josiah left those alone, leaving them in the hands of a later son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone knows and controls their eternal destiny and ours. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, let us be warned and cause us to remember to put you first in all these things. Help us to hold fast to you and to your word. Guard our hearts, our minds, our words, and our witness. Father, help us to look forward in faith and watchfulness to the coming and glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen.